Well, good morning, City Light. I don't know about you, but man, we had a full band up here, and Jordan, Jordan broke out a harmonica and uh, what accordion. I was like, man, this is good stuff today. Uh, let's fill this stage with musicians every week. I love it. Uh, well, I wanted to thank you for uh, joining us on your Memorial Day weekend here. Um, and so I just wanted to start off by saying, if you have served in the armed forces or you're a first responder or you're in the family of somebody in one of those roles, thank you for your service. That matters. What you do to keep our community safe um, is so meaningful. And so can I just, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Yep. So um, we are in the Gospel of John this week, all right? And John, he was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. And toward the end of his book about Jesus' life, he tells us why he wrote it, all right? So let's look at this again. We looked at it last week, but I want to read to you again. John chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. All right, John says Jesus did a whole bunch of signs for people to see. And not all of them made the book, but the ones that did, he recorded for a purpose, for a reason, so that when we saw these signs, when readers one day would read about these signs that he did, it would have an impact on them. They would believe that he was the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. John wrote about Jesus' signs. And so I ask you today, have you ever looked for a sign? Right? Have you ever just looked for a sign? I remember when I was in college, I was trying to get my not-yet-wife to notice me. Okay, And that's hard to do for a guy like me. We've discussed that before. Um, and so we're taking the same psychology course, and she was the only good thing about it. Uh, so I didn't pay much attention to the professor or the class, but I paid a lot of attention to her. And I'd worked up enough guts to speak to her a couple times. And it had gone okay. I think we were kind of in that stage where she knew that I was interested in her, but I had no idea if she was interested in me. I don't know if she knew or not, but I didn't. Have you ever been in that stage of a relationship? You've kind of put yourself out there and you're wondering uh, what's going to come back. Um, it's kind of unsettling. If you've been there, then uh, like me, you were probably looking for a sign, right? So I'm just looking for any indication, one way or the other, from Sarah. And I decided one night, um, some friends of mine were playing games in the lobby of her dorm room. And so I thought, well, I got to show up there. I'm going to knock on her door, get her to come, and I'm going to get a sign, right? We're going to figure this out. And so I went to her dorm room, knocked on her door. As uh, we work out, she wasn't there, okay? So I walked to the lobby. We're playing games. I'm a little disappointed, but uh, the night goes on. Well, as chance would have it, or, uh, or God himself might have ordained this, Sarah comes back with her friends, and she walks into the lobby of her dorm. And immediately, my heart starts racing. My palms start sweating. I look over. My eyes catch hers, and uh, I just wasn't ready for it, okay? I was not planning for her to walk through, and so I think I mustered up something like, Hey. <laughs> and she like glances back, flashes her beautiful smile and says, 
hey. And then she just kept walking. And she went back to her room. And I thought, oh, man, I botched it. Hey, Eric, hey, that is the best you could do. You don't deserve her. All right, just check out, give up, it's over. Why would you say hey, right? And so I'm there just bummed out. My hope and expectations are crushed. Um, I'm losing at whatever game we're playing, right? It's just all coming down. And I'm about ready to head back to my dorm in my despair when all of a sudden, from above, water just starts pouring down on me, like soaked. I'm getting soaking wet, and I had no idea what was happening. So I wipe my eyes, I look up, and there's a second floor balcony that overlooks the lobby, and I see Sarah and her roommate laughing with empty water bottles running back to their room. And I thought, oh man, this is a new sign. I don't... I don't really understand women. I never have. I'm working on that. But I don't think you pour water onto somebody that you're not interested in. I think even for a dense guy like me, that's flirting, I think. And so all of a sudden, I was excited. She must like me. This is a sign. I've never been so happy to walk home in wet socks, okay? It was a good day. I was just looking for a sign. Have you ever looked for a sign? Some indicator that would tell you this is what you're looking for or it isn't. It would point you in the right direction. Have you ever looked for a sign? I have. And sometimes I think we just want a sign. And in the Gospel of John, um, in his account of the life of Jesus Christ, John recorded signs that Jesus did. And he could have called them miracles because that's what they were. Jesus did things like walking on water, like healing people, like taking a meal that was meant for one person and feeding multitudes, thousands. He did things like raising people from the dead. These are miracles, incredible stuff. And John could have called them miracles. I've recorded these miracles, but he didn't. He didn't call them wonders. He called them signs. And I think that's an intentional choice of words because signs are things that Jesus did that point us to a deeper reality, a truer reality. John recorded this stuff so that we could see things that we might not catch on our own. And so today we're going to look at the first of Jesus' signs in John's gospel. You heard Derek read it. He turned the water to wine. All right, so here's the story. Let me set it up uh, one more time. Jesus and his disciples, he hadn't called all of them yet. There were maybe four or five. And Jesus' mom, they show up to this wedding. All right, now weddings in Jesus' day, they were a big deal. Like a big deal meaning they would last up to seven days, right? A dance floor to dance on, food to feast on, wine to sip on. For seven days, their wedding celebrations make ours look pretty lame in comparison, okay? Now, truth be told, it would be pretty expensive to pay for a seven-day wedding ceremony and celebration these days. It's expensive enough paying for a half-day wedding ceremony and celebration these days, but uh, it was no different back then. 
all right? There was financial stress and expectation involved with the wedding back then. In fact, the groom was responsible for paying for all of the food and all of the wine, providing everything that was necessary for a wedding celebration. And that was some, somehow an indicator of his ability to provide for his new wife and family in the future. So if you don't provide food and wine for a seven-day feast, what happens? It gets cut short, and then there's embarrassment and shame for both parties involved because the groom can't provide, all right? Now, that's what's about to happen in our passage today. The wine is run out. Jesus' mom knows it, and here's what the Bible says. John chapter 2 uh, Let's see, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Okay, first let's get something out of the way. When Jesus says woman, I didn't coach Derek on this. He doesn't say it like Derek did. Woman, what does this have to do with me, right? That's not it, okay? It wasn't a term of endearment. Like, oh, my dearest mother, you know, uh, grace among women. Um, It also wasn't derogatory like some men use the term women today. Woman in this context would have been like saying ma'am in the South, okay? It was just a respectful term with which Jesus spoke to his mom. So let's get that out of the way. Jesus was not a chauvinist. He says, uh, woman, what does this have to do with me? Mary tells Jesus about the current situation. There's no wine. He responds about a future situation. My hour has not yet come. It gives us kind of this idea that he thinks there is an hour that will come later. She wants him to provide now. He starts talking about something he's going to do later. All right? What is he talking about? My hour has not yet come. Well, you remember how we started this whole thing? We looked at the reason that John wrote this book. He said that the signs were written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, In other words, we might believe that Jesus was the promised Savior sent by God himself to do the work that it would take to conquer the sin that had plagued mankind from way back at Adam and Eve in the beginning And plagued them until this point and until now, right? Jesus, uh, when John wrote these signs, he wanted us to believe that he was the Christ, the Son of God, the one who would conquer sin and death. And so when Jesus turns the water into wine, somehow John is saying that is a sign that points us to Jesus' redemptive work as the Christ and the Savior. It was meant to point us to something that we don't see or didn't see. So when Jesus said, my hour has not yet come, he was pointing to an hour that would come. What hour is that? He's going to talk about his hour many more times in the book of John. And every time he does it, he means the hour when he would finally accomplish his saving work on the cross. His hour was the hour of his death. And so what Jesus does next is going to point us to his hour. What he does in this hour at the wedding is a sign of what he will do in his hour later on. Okay, so uh, let's pick up the story. 
Jesus tells the servants, the waiters, hey, there are six big jars. Uh, go fill them with water. So that would have resulted in like 120 to 180 gallons of liquid. These are not small jars, okay? And they filled them to the brim. They obeyed. And so then Jesus says, hey, take a little bit of what's in those jars, draw it out, and take it to the master of the feast. Now, the master of the feast is not the groom. He's like the head of the party planning committee or the uh, uh, wedding, what are they called? The people who organize all that stuff? I don't even know. Planner, right? Maitre d'. So he's in charge of the feast, but not the groom. All right? So the waiters, the servers, they take some out. They take it to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast would have known what usually happens at a wedding, and he would have expected um, wine that wasn't as good as what he'd had in the first few days. Okay, it'd be like going from running out of good champagne to serving boxed wine. All right, that's uh, what he expects, but that's not what he experiences. When he took uh, a drink of the water-turned wine, he was excited He was thrilled. This is better than what I'd had before. In fact, he turns to the groom and praises him, and this is what he says. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. All right, so you see what's happened. Let me make a couple connections between the sign and the Savior. Here's where we're going today. Um, The sign points to a better party, and a better provision. That would have made a good slide. I didn't do it. Okay, the sign points to a better party and a better provision. Here we go. Let's start with number one. The sign points to a better party. When Jesus turned the water into wine, something crazy happened. Okay, Um, you might be shocked. The water actually turned into wine. Okay, not grape juice, not some other sort of water that was just a different color. When Jesus turned the water into wine, that water actually turned into wine. And it was good wine that people actually wanted to drink. All right, and so if that messes with your idea of Jesus' take on alcohol, uh, just let it for a minute, okay? Because uh, we want the Bible to inform us on this. That's okay. And so let me give you a quick overview of what the Bible has to say about wine, okay? Um, We'll start with this. The Bible, first of all, speaks very clearly against drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18 says, and do not get drunk with wine. There's only one way to interpret that verse. Uh, Don't get drunk. That's not what you're supposed to do. It's not okay. Um, Pretty clear. So there are a lot of people who have a family history or they're prone to drunkenness and they choose just not to drink at all. They just totally abstain. That is a good and right response to what the Bible teaches about alcohol and wine. That's a God-honoring decision. And so that's okay. Um, Some people totally abstain. But let me give you a couple other verses that talk about wine, okay? Um, Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 says this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Isaiah says it twice. God's going to throw a party one day. He's going to make a feast, and there will be good food and fine wine, well-refined. It's going to be the good stuff at God's party. 
Isaiah wrote it in the Bible. That's what God's feast is going to look like. Okay, one more um, from Psalm 104. From your lofty abode, God, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. That he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. When God waters the ground and gives growth to plants, why does he do that? He does it so that man can cultivate. He can bring forth food and wine. And what is that supposed to do? Gladden the heart of man. It's in the Bible. I'm not making this stuff up. All right? God is not against good wine enjoyed without drunkenness. In fact, in the Old Testament, wine was a sign of God's blessing and prospering on his people. It was an indication of God's favor toward men. Isaac, when he blessed his son, Jacob, he said something like, um, may you always have good wine. Okay? It was a sign of God's favor. And so that means when the Bible says drunkenness is bad, it means drunkenness is bad because it's a misuse of a good thing. All right, God is not against good wine. So let's get back to our passage today. Here's my first point. The sign points to a better party. Jesus turning the water to wine made the party better. He gave new life to a party that was about to get really lame. And I think we see it in two ways. Okay, first, the party got better in quantity. He changed upwards of 180 gallons of water into wine you're not going to run out, okay? The good stuff is going to last through the whole party. You can keep going back, and there will always be more. When Jesus changed the water to wine, he changed a great quantity so that there was a great abundance. When Jesus showed up, the party got better in quantity. But that's not the only way it got better. It got better in quality, when Jesus changed the water to wine, it was the good stuff. This wasn't the kind of wine that just gives you bad breath and a headache, right? This is wine that you would enjoy drinking. And so he took the level of, the, of class in the place up like 10 notches, all right? The, the host was super thrilled that he had saved the good wine until the end. So when Jesus shows up, the party gets better in quantity and quality. And so at this point, I'd just like to pause and ask you, do you believe that Jesus makes the party better? Do you believe that when Jesus shows up, he takes it up a notch? Be honest with yourself. You look at Jesus, if Jesus were to come to this room, you think the party's going to get better or duller? What do you think? If you don't think the party's going to get better, if you think it's going to get more dull, you're not alone, okay? Um, there were some folks in the Bible called Pharisees, and they kind of rode this train too. They were the religious people of the day who accused Jesus. They one time called him this in Matthew, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus was not a glutton or a drunkard because he never sinned. He did turn water to wine, 
but he was not a drunkard. Um, He was a friend to sinners, but in the Bible, you'll find no command against that, okay? Um, These guys were launching attacks on Jesus. Now, track with me for a minute. I think the church is too often a place of only seriousness. Um, I think somebody at some point um, opened their Bible and read it like we should, and they saw it, and they looked out at the church, and they said, listen, I don't think we're taking this seriously enough. I don't think we're following God's word closely enough. We need to get more serious about this. And that's a good and right response to reading the Bible. In fact, if there was a vote on that, I would vote for that all day long. We should obey the commands that are in the Bible, and we should take it seriously. But the problem happens when we take that too far. You see, what the Pharisees did was they had a set of rules given by God, and then they started making rules about those rules. And they made rules about the rules that they made about the rules, right? So you could end up following the rules, but still getting in trouble because you didn't follow them the right way according to all of the other rules. They said we need to get serious about following God, and that wasn't the problem. The problem was they started following things that weren't from God. And I think there's still a legacy of that kind of thinking in the church today. All these rules that start with don't, they can just suck the life out of the place, right? Don't eat that, don't drink that, don't wear that, don't hang out with them. Have you heard those rules in the church? We've got a legacy of rules on rules. And in John's time, I want you to see that Jesus followed the rules, but he did it in very unexpected ways. And this time, he did it by turning water into wine. Jesus is the life of the party because he gives life to the party, even when he's following the rules. So look at this. Later in the book of John, we'll read these words. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be Jesus is a joyful guy, and he actually wants us to be a joyful people. He wants to give us his joy, a full joy, a complete joy in great quantity and abundance. Uh, If you came here today out of obligation, dreading a wasted couple hours of your Memorial Day weekend, I want you to know that is not what Jesus wants for you. That is not why we gather here. Jesus turned the water into wine, and he told the waiters, serve it, right? It didn't stay in the jars. It got served. And when it did, there was no judging, no condemnation, no comments under his breath, only wine and joy. When Jesus shows up, the party gets better. And I want to encourage you guys for a minute about the joy that I see in our church, okay? I think it's here. Let me tell you about something that's been happening in our city group. Um, In my city group, we have about a dozen adults and 200 kids every week, okay? Because that's how city groups happen at uh, our church. And so this is what the night looks like. We all show up. We have dinner together. There's lots of laughing, good times. We start conversation late, but about the time we get started on conversation, the kids go up. Sometimes they hear Bible story, truth be told. Sometimes they just watch a movie, right? While we are downstairs and we study God's word or tell stories about his grace in our lives. And then we pray. And after all that's done, you know what happens? The kids stream down the stairs, and they've started yelling, Alexa, play dance music. 
and then they and everybody else, we just dance for a while, all right? It's like city group dance party every week, and it's fun, okay? When you got 200 kids in a room dancing, you kind of want to dance with them. It's a good time. In our city group, there is faith and fun. We get to worship our Savior Jesus and enjoy him. And I think that's what God wants us to do. This sign is pointing to a better party in Jesus. He came to give us joy, and that joy is worked out in all kinds of different ways in all of our city groups. It marks our family in all kinds of different ways in different uh, times at our church. Jesus is making our parties better, and we only want more of that joy, all right? Um, So the sign first points to a better party in Jesus. I got to get going. I could be here all day with you guys. Um, Number two, the first, uh, uh, first, the sign points to a better party. Second, the sign points to a better provision, okay? Here's what's happening. Jesus is about to make old things new. And this is biblical. Um, 2 Corinthians 5 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We kind of like that, don't we? I think this is why Pinterest is so popular. People take like old doors and make new coffee tables or old wine bottles and make new candle holders. I took my wife to the movie the other day. She wanted to see Beauty and the Beast. That's Disney taking an old movie and making it new so they can make a lot more money off of people like me and my wife who go see it, right? We like old things made new. And that's what Jesus is about to do in this sign. Uh, Notice what John tells us about the jars that got filled with water. Um, Oftentimes we focus on how much they held. I want you to see something different. John chapter two, verse six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Why were they there? For the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Listen, those jars had a purpose. They were there for a reason. The Jews would use them to wash their hands and their feet when they came in for the meal. They'd use that water to wash their hands between courses of the meal. That water was intended to purify and cleanse um, the Jews who were in that place. They did that to follow the laws that God gave Moses way back in the beginning of the Bible and all the additional rules that they'd added since then. Remember, rules upon rules. Those jars had a purpose. They helped uh, people uh, follow the laws that God had given. But those laws and rights, they were old. Okay, um, they, they were the original uh, law that God had given that said, hey, um, Follow these laws and clean up your act and you will be right with me. The water was in those jars so that the people could follow the law. Jesus is about to take that, uh, those jars used for an old purpose and make them new. You see, uh, uh, the water cleansed people on the outside by washing. But Jesus was going to change that to wine that would change people on the inside. It foreshadowed and foretold and predicted what Jesus was going to do, what would make him the Christ, what he would accomplish as our Savior. Jesus' blood would make us clean, and we would remember and celebrate that truth by drinking wine. Okay? Look at what Jesus says. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. How do you get eternal life? The blood of Jesus. At the Last Supper, Jesus gave his disciples wine and said this, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for what? The forgiveness of sins. How do you get forgiveness of sins? It's Jesus' blood. How do you remember that? By drinking wine. And John writes, The blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. How do we get cleansed from sin? Jesus' blood. There was an old way of getting cleansed, washing with water. There's a new way, and it's not freaky cannibalism, okay? In Jesus, God is providing a better way for people to get right with him. We no longer use water to clean up on the outside. We are washed by the blood of the lamb on the inside. The party is better because the provision is better. So I would ask you, uh, I think if we're, to be honest with yourself, I think if we're honest with ourselves, some of us, um, we go back to the proverbial jars and we expect them to still be filled with water. Let me tell you what I mean. Last week, we celebrated baptisms. We got to do three of them. I love baptisms. And I love them because they spark some fun conversations. I just get to ask people, have you ever been baptized? And when I ask people that, you know what one of the most common responses is? Uh, No, I haven't. I need to get some things right first. Uh, I got some things to clean up in my life first. What does that sound like? To me, it sounds like we're going to the jars looking for water to clean up. If I were to ask you, what does it take to get to heaven? How would you respond? I think a very common answer is, well, you've got to be a good person. You've got to clean up your act. What does that sound like? It sounds like we're going to the jars expecting water. But there's good news. There is no more water in the jars. Jesus changed the water to wine. He made a better way. He's provided a better way to connect with God. The good news of the gospel is not just for people who can keep their act clean. The good news of the gospel is for people who can't keep their act clean, who are dirty with sin and shame and guilt and have tried to scrub it off with water, but the stains go too deep and the water's not enough. And if we're honest... I think that's all of us. None of us can scrub our stains away just washing with water on the outside. We need a better provision. We need cleaned from the inside out. And this sign is pointing us to the only way that that will ever happen. It's through the blood of Jesus, the Christ. God gave us this as a sign that would point us to Jesus so that we would believe in him and have life in his name. This is good news. Let me tell you what John, Pastor John Piper says. He wrote, as the ultimate purifier, Jesus is not moved by religious ritual, by outside washing. He replaced all Old Testament ritual once and for all with his own blood. There is only one way to be pure before God, the hardest way for him and the easiest way for you. Wash your robes in the blood of the lamb, come to him and find life. In Jesus, there is a better party because there's a better 
uh, provider. So I would ask you to remember what John said at the very end of our passage, verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. John wrote this book that we would believe in him. His disciples saw it and they did it. And so I'd ask today, have you done it? Have you believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? If you haven't, would you today, maybe even for the first time? We don't come here as a church on Sunday mornings to waste your time. We come here to lift high the name and person of Jesus so that you can see him for who he is and find life in his name. Amen.